everybody, it's Tasha. So you're about to hear my conversation with the Moreau Quartet, wherein they teach me some really fascinating stuff about Beethoven's later life that I had never heard before. And it, we also talk about his uh, quartet opus 131, or however it is that you say that. Did you know that Beethoven had a foster son when he was, you know, kind of an older guy? Me neither. Learn all about that and more in this episode. And um, by the way, when you're absolutely wrapped with attention and thinking, God, this podcast is amazing. If only I could do something. Make sure to subscribe to, rate us, and review us wherever you're listening to the episode and to tell all of your podcast nerds that the classroom is back in session. Okay, thanks. And now, a word from our sponsor, Maestro Classics. Are you new to classical music or know someone who is? Maestro Classics' recording of Peter and the Wolf is an awesome introduction to classical music. Why choose Maestro Classics' Peter and the Wolf of all the Peter and the Wolves? Well, this production has the only complete instrumental recording performed by the London Phil, a version on Russian folk instruments, which you're hearing right now, a biography on the composer, music lessons with the conductor, a 24-page activity book, and it's the number one selling Peter and the Wolf CD on Amazon, Listen to it at maestroclassics.com and save 17% on your order with the code CLASSROOM. And now for the episode you've all been waiting for, that one I mentioned before. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Desha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and joining me today from KMFA in Austin are cellist Joshua Gindel and violist John Largesse of the Moreau Quartet. Moreau is actually the faculty string quartet in residence at the School of Music in UT Austin. The quartet is all about the string quartet repertoire, and to that end, they're going to teach me all about Beethoven's string quartets, Opus 131. Hey, guys. Hi, hey. how you doing? Good, good. How's the uh, how's the weather in Austin? Are you wearing flip-flops? We could be. Uh, we knew oh. that there were going to be some social media pictures taken, so we kind of dressed up a little bit. That Oh, yeah. Yeah, which means I sense. have my cowboy boots on, because you know it's Texas. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was actually just in Austin visiting friends there, and it was glorious. Yes. The weather was beautiful. Anyway, enough about that. Talk to me about your dedication to the string repertoire, and particularly to Beethoven's music. Why is this what you guys are drawn to doing? We have, well, hundreds of years of incredible literature written for the four instruments of the string quartet, two violins, viola, and cello. And it's glorious music. And the reason it has existed as an art for as long as it has is because 
it has been constantly filled with masterpieces and and composers often used it as their their language their tool for expressing sort of autobiographical things really personal music moments and, and they put that to music in their lives and you know we were drawn to it at an early age it is wonderful to play string quartets because we are part of a group uh, yet we have independence in our voices I'm the only cellist in the group I have my own part but we get the sort of collegial environment of working with three others yeah. and we get a chance to share ideas and try to bring four personalities together to make great music bit more about something that you just said what you were talking about how the string quartet sort of format has been used to tell a lot of autobiographical stories why is that what 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 is it about that particular uh, arrangement of instruments makes composers tell their own stories through it well you know it's I think that's a really good question from the kind of very beginning of string quartets, and usually we trace that to a composer named Haydn, who was Beethoven's teacher, by the way. Sure, yeah. There was always the idea that the string quartet sort of mirrored human conversation. There's just enough individual people in a quartet that everyone can have their own voice and say it in a certain way, but there's space for them to be heard. It's not a huge room full of musicians or people. It's also not a soloist. Yeah in a monologue. It's sort of the balance between those two things and creating a conversation between the parts is sort of the main idea. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's like it's an intimate setting, but it's a an interaction between multiple people. That's interesting. The music was written and intended for intimate spaces too. So yeah. there was a real interaction not just between the musicians, but between the musicians and the people listening. Yeah. And I think that made it feel very personal. And so there therefore it gave them it seemed like the right medium for for these expressions. You might not know yeah. that, I mean, the reason why they called it chamber music is because it was played in chambers, not concert halls, originally. Right. Yeah, I, d- I did hear that. You know, the whole idea that you were in someone's living room, you know, talking about something through music, but it was really right right there. It wasn't sort of set up on a, on a stage, you know, as a performance. Mm-hmm. It was something that was sort of supposed to be right in front of you, you were supposed to interact with. Yeah. Yeah, and I've actually experienced some of that too, and it, it really is just a totally different experience than being in a concert hall. It's just, it is a very intimate experience.
so with regards to Beethoven and the Opus 31, 131, sorry, that, that you guys recorded, I'm going to start with the most basic question, which is, what does Opus 131 mean? So, yeah, that's a really good question. You know, my parents don't know much about music, and they're always asking me, why, didn't you, why don't you just call it, like, give it a name? Like, I'm, I'm, and I'm like, you mean like Fred or like, you know, like the happy quartet? I'm like, uh. but um, it's sort of the tradition in classical music to use the word opus, which means work or creative work. Mm-hmm. And composers would write a lot of different pieces throughout their lives, but the ones that they felt were sort of their main important pieces to publish, they would give what's called an opus number to it. So, you know, the first piece that you'd write as a young composer and get published, you'd usually call it Opus One. Mm-hmm. Beethoven, this piece was written near the end of his life. So I okay. think maybe the last Opus number, I'm actually not sure what the last Opus number is, but it's in the Opus 130s or maybe Opus 140. And so oh, this wow. this is one of the last works that he wrote, Opus 131. And okay. that, that number doesn't re- really mean anything other than in the context of all of his published works when he was alive you know, it comes at the end as opposed to at the beginning. I see. Yeah, if there's anything I have learned about Beethoven and doing this show, it's that, like, his music varies widely from, like, one creative period to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about this later period, and then just tell me what's going on in this piece. So, you know, late Beethoven, the last maybe two, three, four years of his life, uh, you have to remember he was completely deaf by this time, and he had been deaf uh, and been going deaf for 10, 15, almost, maybe almost 20 years, actually. Oh, yeah. So he's in his own world. It's hard to communicate with other people just in a normal, everyday way. They had to write things down on a uh, notepad for him to have a conversation because he couldn't hear oh, what they wow. were saying. So I think as terrible as that was for him as a person, as an artist, as a composer, he really was forced to turn inward to his own musical imagination. hear any of the pieces he was writing down. He couldn't sit at the piano and improvise and then write down what he heard outside of himself. He had to have all that creativity from within. And I think that makes all the works of the late period, late Beethoven, especially the late quartets, sometimes people will talk about them like they're very esoteric and hard to understand. And I can understand why they might say that. But I think what really is the essence of them that he's digging deep within himself to really share emotions actually that were perhaps not normal, quote-unquote, or acceptable, quote-unquote, at the time to put in music. Things like this work, 131, which was written during a stormy time in his life. He was having terrible relation with his foster son, his nephew, Carl, who committed suicide within a few weeks of 
of him completing this piece, you know, you hear he, in he one thirty. He committed suicide. Uh, sorry, he attempted to commit suicide. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. He, he, okay. He actually um, was really depressed. He actually found a gun. He put the gun to his head and he pulled the trigger and was oh. lucky enough that the bullet glanced off of his skull and did not kill him. But Whoa. Beethoven was dealing with a young teen, you know, in this kind of intense depression. Uh, wait a minute, for the wait whole a minute. Months. So, Be- so old man Beethoven, mm-hmm. old man, deaf old man Beethoven is taking care of a teenager. Yep, Carl is his teenage nephew okay. whose father died, and he adopted him yeah. as his foster son. And you know, keep in mind, wow. this is Be- the Beethoven's end of his life. But this is yeah. also the 19th century, so he was only in his 50s. <laughs> oh, okay. He wasn't okay. 90 years old. Like we get, the, you know, it's a big achievement to live till 19, yeah. you know, till you're 60 years old without antibiotics in the 19th century. Speaking of old, is your website getting a little long in the tooth, lacking in pizzazz? Check out the new Classical Classroom website at classicalclassroomshow.com to see an example of the work our friends at New Y can do for your website. They can also help you with the promotion to make sure that the world knows that your shiny new website and your business exists. For more info, go to classicalclassroomshow.com slash NW. That's N as in new and W as in Y. Okay, now back to my chat with the Moreau Quartet. So we were talking about Beethoven's Opus 131. It sounds like Beethoven himself was, he was dealing with a lot around the time that he was composing this. What did that mean for this piece? Like what bearing did it have on the piece? And, and are we hearing some of that in the music? Well, there's definitely an undertone to this work of struggle, of it's a little bit of despair, of sadness. The sixth movement particularly is very sad, a deeply mm-hmm. sorrowful. so cool like you really hear the sadness in there like you're saying I can't believe that he was composing all of this without being able to hear it like how can you how can you even do that all of these things I sort of I personally feeling is that they're coming from his life exper- experience you know, going through this with his teenage foster son. Yeah. But at the same time, the music is pretty radical for the time period. Uh, the whole piece has seven movements, but they run into each other without pause. So it's oh, wow. one big, long stream of consciousness quartet. And I don't think he would have ever considered doing that if he were you know, able to hear other people's music at the time. This was something that came from deep within himself and probably mm-hmm. was difficult for listeners when they first heard it to really understand, well, you know, the piece doesn't stop. How did we end up in a movement yeah. number two, movement number three, movement number five? And they all have different characters and different emotions to them. The last movement has sort of a heroic determination, uh, almost a fearsome rush towards its climax. Mm-hmm. 
So you said that this was all one continuous piece with no breaks. What's it like to play this? Like as a musician, how, how is that different from other pieces? Yeah, it's definitely a little more exhausting than your average string quartet because, you know, you with a normal string quartet, four movements or three movements, you have a moment in between each movement to kind of put your hands down, relax your fingers, re, you know, sort of collect yourself and get prepared for the next character or the next movement mm -hmm. that might be something totally different. With this piece, his transitions are really quick from movement to movement and the characters are vastly different. So emotionally, it's you have to be a little bit manic uh, or bipolar maybe to kind of get right into that next movement and make sure you're doing it justice with the right kind of play and the right character. Yeah. And it's a big piece anyway. It's it's 50 minutes, so it's it's a big, long, exhausting piece in a key C sharp minor, which is also not the easiest key in the world to play on a string instrument. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of things. Yeah that make it challenging to, to perform. guys, unfortunately, we are having a very short interview today. You've just like whetted my appetite to learn more about this piece. So perhaps we can talk again. And uh, otherwise, I, I hope that you have a, a good day there in Austin. Thank you. Yeah, we're in Seattle quite frequently. We record all come, of our albums in Seattle. Come see us. That'd be fantastic. I'd, I'd love to meet you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deja. Yeah. Thanks for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody, that does it for this episode. For more Classroom, go to classicalclassroomshow.com. You can find all of the information that you want about the show there, including ways to connect with us online. Email us at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com, and please do, we love to hear from you. Thanks today to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM in Seattle, for sending us to school with a note pinned to our lapel for the teacher. Thanks to our birthplace, Houston Public Media. Thanks to our official tailor, Timothy's Tailoring and Car Detail, where you and your car will leave looking lovely, though mind that you go to the right counter or you may get vacuumed while your car gets pants. Thanks to the Moreau Quartet for being on the show. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>